Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guidebooks. Hello and welcome to Trail Mix by GazeAtTheNationalParks.com. <laughs> Can you believe I said that? Hello and welcome to Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Trail Mix is the short format episode of our show. While our long format episodes explore one hiking trail and one national park, one park at a time, Trail Mix allows us to dive deeper into things we didn't get to cover in our long format episodes. That's right. And this Trail Mix episode is all about coal vein fires and their frightening dominion. So what do you know about coal vein fires? That is a great question. And I'm not going to lie, I don't know much. I don't know much. Um, um, I, but legit, I don't. Like, I know we did the Colvain Trail mm-hmm. in Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Mm-hmm. And I remember there were some interpretive signs about Colvain fires. But, but not a lot. Not a lot. And I don't remember much right now. So no, I mean, at this point, Colvain fire sounds like, you know, like a great band from like the early aughts. It was like a death metal band. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so. The first mention either of us really saw related to coal vein fires was, was while hiking Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Theodore Roosevelt National Park is on the traditional and stolen land of the Mandan, Hidatsta, Arikara, Crow, and many other indigenous people. That's right. There was the Coal Vein Trail, which was a nature interpretive trail that at the time we hiked it was out of the interpretive guides at the trailhead. And there was also the sign we saw when we hiked to the Boycourt Trail, quote, Coal Vein Fire Burning Do Not Report, end quote. It was clear to us in this first afternoon at Theodore Roosevelt National Park that Coal Vein Fires had played some part in shaping the landscape of the park, but we had little clue to the science behind them. Let's first start by defining defining what a coal vein fire is, which essentially is a combustion of coal beneath the surface. While gas may be emitted in a coal vein fire, or coal seam fire as they're sometimes known, light and flames seldom are seen. Because of this, these fires are often referred to as smoldering. 
Like your look. (laughs) (laughs) Now to bait you with a little bit of terror, these types of fires are the most persistent types of fires on Earth and can burn for thousands of years. And these types of fires date back to at least a million years ago on this planet. So, ooh, some new existential terror that I I didn't know know was in my field. Uh Uh-huh. That there have been coal vein fires for thousands of Mm -hmm. years underneath Mm -hmm. where we are. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're just, they've been burning. It's like the Gnome King's kingdom. Literally, though. <laughs> Who's the Gnome King? <laughs> mm-hmm. If you get that Return to Oz reference, mm-hmm. please let us know. Yeah. In this episode, we seek to unpack how coal vein fires are started and what conditions help them to flourish, where coal vein fires have had the biggest impacts, and what environmental concerns are related to these terrors below the surface, which sounds like a tagline for the movie Tremors, but I digress. We also want to take a look at Theodore Roosevelt National Park's history with coal vein fires just to put some perspective to it all. Okay, so there are a few ways that coal vein fires can start. Let's start with the most human-made and then move to the purely scientific. In the simplest ways, coal vein fires start with human intervention via mining. Either during the mining process or once a mine has been abandoned, there is a ripeness in the air for a coal vein fire to begin. That being said, not all mining operations or previous mining operations are in peril. Not that we're advocating for coal or coal mining. Whether by accident or on purpose, humans have had a pretty record in regards to starting fires in mines. Shock of all shocks. Accidental ways that a mining fire could start include while mining, breaking into a chamber of methane gas in the process of mining, causing a spark, and the spark causing the ignition of the mine. Another way that fires could start accidentally is by burning trash or debris within an abandoned mine, helping to ignite the vein. Purposeful ways are more of the distant past than they are of the current time, but would include sabotage or intervention via the authorities into bootleg mining, which would usually result in the mine being destroyed via explosion, causing the mine to ignite. Not great. All that to say, if conditions are ripe and a fire is started near the mine or an exposed area of the vein, then a fire could ignite as well. This brings us to the second way that mine fires begin. Nature itself. Whether via a lightning strike that causes a forest fire that finds its way close to the mine opening, or mine vent, or through self-ignition of coal itself, nature also has a hand to play. Now, the Self-ignition of coal is pretty fascinating because chemistry. There are some coals which could be considered to be low-grade and soft, that if exposed to the surface, can have a chemical reaction with the atmosphere, specifically oxygen, which can cause the coal to ignite. Now, it may take years for this reaction to peak in ignition, but some coals can self-ignite at temperatures of only 104 degrees Fahrenheit, which furthers the fact that surface fires or wildfires could very easily ignite a coal vein that has become exposed to the outside world. Then, of course, there is the good old one-two punch of humans destroying one ecosystem and creating a climate disaster, which leads to yet another climate disaster, like in Indonesia. Here, giant tracts of land, once filled with dense rainforests, are being logged, and the land is being cleared for agricultural use. This issue is pervasive because of the coal that exists near the surface of these once forests, and the method used to clear the land. Fire. And chain reactions like in Indonesia are not limited, nor are they the only repercussions for the environment being disturbed in relation to coal. In fact, while coal vein fires are terrifying in their own right, it's the byproducts of these fires that 
also share the spotlight of horror. First, let's talk about sinkholes. You've heard about them in the news, and you've read about them in the paper, and most of the time, sinkholes develop from a change in groundwater, either through the environmental impacts like drought or human-made impacts like development, drilling, and creation of new human-made water features like ponds or lakes. However, sinkholes can form from underground coal fires too. What happens is that the coal fire consumes its fuel, the coal, and the coal turns to ash, the earth shifts, cracks, and drops, sort of like your dance moves. This process is known as subsidence and has been seen in the wake of coal vein fires in the formation of landscapes like the American West. But truly it all comes back to chemistry when we really want to dig in and chat about impacts on the environment, namely the implications of all this burning coal and the release of greenhouse and toxic gases, like what you've been doing all day. Along with carbon monoxide, seam fires release mercury, methane, and carbon dioxide into the environment. While all of this is truly terrible on an environmental scale, the release of mercury into the atmosphere, which eventually settles into the landscape and the environment around it, contaminates the food supply and food chains of the area of the fire or fires. Mercury is a heavy metal. In fact, it is considered to be the most toxic heavy metal in the environment. The bad news about all of this, as if it wasn't already bad enough, is that mercury never really goes away. It just sort of moves deeper into the soil of an area, and this may take decades. Okay, so how are we feeling? (laughs) Great. (laughs) About all of this. I mean, it's not great. Nothing is great. I mean, it's in some ways, there is an unavoidable avenue that's being traveled. Not all of these fires are human made, you know, or human started. So that's kind of terrifying. But we've definitely hastened the process in some ways and made it easier. Some ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, uh, oh, I didn't realize how terrible the terrible could be here. Mm-hmm. And it can get real bad. Oh, yeah. With this. Mm-hmm. Horrific. Now that we know a little bit more about coal vein fires themselves and their impacts, let's talk about where we might find coal vein fires. Well, the answer is anywhere. Unbeknownst to me, I will assume you as well, Dusty, the United States has the largest coal reserve in the world. Didn't know that, no. To that end, the Office of Surface Mining, or OSM, maintains a database to monitor these fires across the nation. At least 21 states are hosts to active coal seam fires, the state with the most being good old neighboring Pennsylvania. Didn't know that either. The most public of coal seam fires in not only Pennsylvania, but the nation as a whole, has got to be Centralia, Pennsylvania. The Centralia fire has been burning since 1962 and was caused by human influence, namely the burning of trash in a landfill that was near two abandoned mines. It is estimated that this fire could continue to burn for another 250 years, consuming an eight-mile stretch of vein before the coal that feeds it runs out. But Centralia is not alone, nor is the United States the worst offender when it comes to coal vein fires. That, unequivocally, is China. India offers a close second by way of highest concentration of fires, but in China, where coal is the dominant source of energy production, a host of problems persist. In fact, it's estimated that between 20 and 200 million tons of coal are burned in Chinese coal fires, and that this burning alone contributes to 1% of the global carbon dioxide emissions. We. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> 
Chinese dependency on coal as an energy source has left the doorway open for coal vein fires both on a major industrial scale as much as on an individual one as rural Chinese people tend to dig their own coal pits from various surface locations in order to power and heat their homes. These pits are eventually abandoned when they become too deep to remain sustainable, and this allows for the likelihood of fire. And if you're wondering, with all these coal vein fires burning worldwide, and with all these emissions and toxic chemicals being released, why not extinguish them? Turn your gaze to Australia's burning mountain, which has been burning for 6,000 years. The problem is that there are a host of issues in trying to extinguish a coal vein fire. If it is caught quickly and is close to the surface, it is much easier. But the deeper it is, and the longer it has been burning, the more difficult it becomes. Sounds like all of my years of yearning and panging. In Centralia, for example, a variety of ideas were put forth, including a process known as flushing, which involves boring holes and pouring in wet material like sand, clay, and cement to cut off the oxygen to the fire. This rarely works and was proven as such in Centralia. They also dug a trench to try to cut off the fire, proposed flooding the area with water, and also proposed digging a gigantic ditch to try to cut off the fire. Either the ideas were too expensive or unfeasible. Okay, so, wow. Mm-hmm. This is literally a personal hell. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's wild, this fire in Australia, the Burning Man Mountain, um, 6,000 years. Six Burning strong. 6,000 years. But and this is like not, this is not volcano. This is not no, volcanic activity. But apparently when people were exploring, um, they did believe that it was a volcanic mountain. But because of the, like, the smoke that was rising from it. But it's just the smolder of the fire. And that's the thing, too. It's like, this is just burning below the surface, which is wild to me. It's so wild. Yeah. 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 So how does all this information factor into Theodore Roosevelt National Park? Well, the entire area of the Colvane Trail was the site of an underground seam fire that lasted for 26 years from 1951 to 1977. Ignited in a lightning storm, Colvane fires in the West are common from storms, from prairie fires, or as previously discussed, due to combustion, exposure of coal to the atmosphere through eroded soil layers. The area of the Colvane Trail, after a lengthy burn of the fire, went through the process of subsidence, dropping a considerable amount and filling the void of the 12-foot-thick coal vein that was once there and had turned to ash. Girl, it'll never fill that void. (laughs) Much of western North Dakota, including Theodore Roosevelt National Park and the Little Missouri National Grasslands, have coal veins running through them. They are monitored, especially when they are active, but they are mostly treated as a natural part of the environment of the park and the state. Along the coal vein trail, many remnants of the fire that smoldered there for a quarter of a century can be seen, including the Red Rock, which we described in episode 92, Coal Vein Trail, which is called Clinker. Clinker is formed when the burning coal fire bakes the rock. It makes the rock harder and gives it its red color. Just like so many natural processes in our world and in our national parks, rarely are we privy to see the before and after effects of geology within a single lifetime. While coal vein fires can burn for thousands of years, the vein fire that shaped this section of the park was short-lived cause and effect in the sense of geological time. While coal is a natural resource, coal mining and coal use impact our water and air and contribute to global warming constantly. This comes not only from the detrimental effects of 
of Colvane fires, but the use of coal itself, as it is the second most used source of energy consumption worldwide. While there is a lack in what we can do to control and contain Colvane fires, there are a multitude of ways via renewable resources in which we can unhinge our dependency on energy sources that are ultimately harmful for the planet and its inhabitants. The sources for this episode include the U.S. Department of the Interior and the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement, the National Park Service, the Smithsonian Magazine article titled Fire in the Hole by Kevin Krashik, and the Global Forest Watch article Embers Under the Earth, The Surprising World of Coal Seam Fires by Thalen Monroe. And now, let's end this episode with a game. So this game is inspired by Colvane Fires, but not really about Colvane Fires. It's called Fire Sale. Um, so I just took the idea of thing, the, I took the term fire and kind of ran with it. And okay. a fire sale, I feel like, happens when a business is going under or out of business. I mean, well, yeah. yeah. So I'm going to list some things and give a description. and You have to name the business that no longer exists. Oh. That has gone okay, bankrupt great. and gone under. I'm ready. All right. Fire sale for 100. Books, mugs, magazines, and periodicals, along with fixtures, were made cheap when this book-selling giant went bankrupt in 2011. What is... Books a million? No. What is Borders? That's right. Okay, Books great. a million? Who the hell is that? <laughs> Have you never seen a Books a million? No. It's like the Barnes and Noble. Of the uh, South. Well, it's like a Barnes and Noble competitor. However, I always say, listen, they're not an official sponsor. I can say what I want. I always found Books a Million to be more like a toy store. It's just like you go in and it's just like games and stuffed animals. And there happen to be some books for sale. Hmm. Starting to feel like Barnes and Noble is getting that way a little bit. Hmm. It's just a lot of toys and a lot of stuffed animals. Well, there's voids to fill. Apparently. Mm -hmm. For 200 Cages, costumes, stilts, and clown white all found their way into a new home when this, the last of the giant circus spectacular with large animals, finally shuttered in 2017. Oh, God. Okay. So, first of all, you're listing things that actually closed, and I thought you were just going to list things that might close, like if something closed. No, no, no. This is like... Okay, so... No, these are things that have actually gone the way What is the the Ringling Brothers? Yep, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Barnum and Bailey Circus. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like the bearded lady, this is me. (laughs) This is me. Mm -hmm. Um, For 300, balls, shoes, weights, clubs, and cleats were all available for cheap when this sports store giant closed in 2016. It's one and only standing competitor benefiting from winning their remaining intellectual property at auction. Oh, God. I don't know that I know this. Can I... Was the competitor Dix? The competitor is Dix, yes. Okay. Was... If you knew a lot about athletic equipment, you might be considered to be a blank on that. An expert? Yeah, another word for expert. Elite. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I don't know. Uh, what is sports authority? Oh, sports authority. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, an authority I never, on I the never went there. Mm. They bought their intellectual property? Apparently. What does that mean? Mm. <laughs> wow. That was in the article I read. Things I need to mm-hmm. re- look into. Mm-hmm. For 400, Stretch Armstrong, Nintendo Wii, Barbie Dreamhouses, and Lego kits all got packed up into the giant toy chest in the sky when this toy supplier closed in 2017. What is Toys R Us? Voids to fill. Voids to fill. Apparently, mm-hmm. Books a Million and Barnes & Noble are filling the toy store. Mm-hmm. The toy store. The toy store void. 
Say that five times fast. Toy Story Voight. Mm. No. 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 Oh. That sounds twister. like a Skinner exercise right mm-hmm. there. Okay. Um, and for 500, VHSs, DVDs, video game cartridges, and movie-sized candy were all liquidated when this rental giant failed to see the steamrolling success of streaming services and on-demand rentals knocking down their door. What is Blockbuster? Correct. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often, and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the national parks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gaze at the national parks.com. That's gaze, G A Z E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on our website, and in the Gaze Shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman and Mariella Klinger with Sean Squios on guitar. Our music producer is Kyler Fordgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we were on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Middlesex County, New Jersey.